My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. was still no word from Jules's father. It had been a few days, and now that all the distractions of the clean-up and connecting Rowan up with all the trades he'd wanted were over, Rowan could tell that Missy and Jules and others were getting very worried. They had no technology in the house, which infuriated Rowan, but he said nothing. How could he, when they'd all been so helpful and kind to him? He'd wanted to help, but it was getting time for him to go along the coast a bit. They had contacts they'd told him about that were ideal for the remaining of his trade goods. There's an oddish lot up there. Not a bit of harm in them, Missy had said. They love their techno gear, like you. Rowan pondered. They'd all learned a lot about each other in the few days. Enough to know where Jules had got her views about techno stuff from but her mother seemed more tolerant of him than her daughter. Strange that, he thought. Mizzy seemed to read his thoughts. She was good at that, and had tried to explain it to him. He he also thought the comments were directed at an unusually quiet Jules. He never found it easy to follow where the threads of conversation would go. Consciousness can be found in all things. The universe is awakening to itself through all manner of beings. So, if we talk on a material plane, we can understand each other. But if we talk on the invisible plane, we may too. But Rowan, if one person is speaking about one and the other person is speaking about another, they will not understand each other. Head, heart, hand, spirit, Rowan. If you stop trying to understand with words in mind and move to, say, the gut, and even more, the heart then all the planes will become one, and understanding at that level is oneness. She smiled at him, and looked very much like Jules then. You love your tech. I love my plants. They express something wonderful to us about the world, and also about a part of ourselves that we love and connect to. Rowan kept trying to listen, but he wasn't sure he got it all. He'd had enough of this deeper thinking anyway, and was ready for some more time on the road. The intensity of their worry was getting to him too. He promised to call on his way back, as he had to come back down the peninsula before heading home on the same road and taking the ferry. And of course, he did want to see Jules again. He really hoped her father turned up. He had had some ideas of his own about trying to locate him, and if he could, he would help. They gave him a little send-off as he set off towards the coast road. He was just starting to breathe easier, When he heard a shout, he leaned out and looked back up the lane behind him and saw Jules running. 
He stopped. What's up, he asked, when she caught up. I forget something? Just me, she laughed, nervously. Rowan's heart did a flip-flop. In a few heartbeats, he realized first he was mad because he wanted a break, and then he had a feeling of lifting inside him at the thought of just the two of them on the road again. It seemed so long since she'd rescued him. What does your mum think? She avoided his eyes when she answered. It's grand. Sure, I'm a woman now, ain't I? I couldn't just stay there waiting. It was obvious she wouldn't say any more. He didn't dare argue, so he just moved over and she climbed up, throwing a backpack inside the wagon. She gave Black Elder a gee-up before Rowan could. He gave her a look that said, I'll manage the horse, thanks. And then they were laughing and moving along the road. The contacts that they'd sent him up to meet turned out to be a huge relief for Rowan as they were completely obsessed with technology, and he got to talk to them for hours about connections and went through the last of his stock with a fine tooth comb, and they paid him in national currency, which he could use back in Dublin for some things for his mum and dad, as well as his own connection fees for the next few years, which was amazing. Jules had looked increasingly impatient and almost distressed as the days went on, so Rowan brought up her father with his new buddies. She didn't look too pleased about this either, but then they all got talking. They said they could look up some data on earth mapping, and if they had a giz, but that one of the community had gone to make a visit to Letterkenny to pay their connection fees and take it all the gizes with them. Rowan spoke up. You could use mine. Jules looked at him. I thought you told me that your father made you hand over your giz before he left, but she couldn't hide her enthusiasm. Well, I did, but I have a small capacity giz. You have to keep putting new credit numbers into it every ten minutes, but I have a secret supply of them in the wagon. He produced the giz and left the others at the screen while he went to get the numbers tickets. Jules watched as they pulled up the satellite images of the storm and Croft referenced it with the route Jules said her father would have been planning as far as she or anyone knew. Tealit, one of the men, came straight out with it. Those wind speeds and directions, they generate mega waves too big for some of the small fleet to cope with. They'll have had to put in somewhere. What if the Coast Guard said? Jules and her mother had been up and down to the villages as they hadn't any kind of communication giz in their house. The station near Cooper's village at Anport said they've four boats in the little port now, and that one of those boats, the Kelpie, spoke to Dad as they were heading in. He was somewhere northwest of their position and was okay and heading in after them. Said something about making for... It was garbled. Somewhere a bit further up the coast, they thought, thinking it might be quicker to get inshore. No one in any of the ports on the coast had had them in their docks and no one had heard anything since. It had gone very quiet in the room as Jules finished. The screen flickered and went blank. Rowan arrived in, looking despondent. The mood in the room wasn't much better. They're gone, he said. They must have taken them. I checked all the stuff in the box, but forgot these were in the back of a drawer in the wagon. They got them when they went through everything when I was knocked out. This started a flurry of questions, so they had to tell the story for the hundredth time in the last few days. Jules smiled at Rowan, and he was glad she was looking better. The next day, they decided to set off towards Anport. 
As they rode along in the wagon, they both looked out at the calm sea and started to talk at the same time. There's something. Do you think... Sorry, you go. No, you go. They laughed nervously. Jules began. Okay, well, I wanted to tell you about my vision on the day of the ceremony. Rowan shifted uncomfortably. Are you sure? Is that allowed? Yes, Jules sighed, impatient with him again. He shrugged as if to say, how would I know? She continued. Well, I've been thinking about it for days. I thought it was just a recollection of you in the water. It was a flash in the vision, and there were other stuff in it, all about my connection to nature and other things, so I didn't really pay attention at the time. But over the last few days, it's been coming back to me, and it's clearer now. The person in the water, it's not you, it's my dad. He's wearing a survival suit, but he's half submerged like you, not in a river, but some kind of bay, and the sea is rough around him. It's... She stopped. She was upset. Rowan didn't know what to say. He put his hand tentatively on her shoulder. Look, it's probably just mixed up with that and, and worrying and what you had to do with me. No, you don't understand. I've been learning how to work with visions and dreams for years, probably longer, as everyone in my family uses them to guide themselves. For us, they're as clear as your screen images. But you're right, the interpretation can be difficult, especially if you can't ground yourself or you're too emotionally involved. She started to weep in earnest now. Rowan put his arm fully around her and pulled her close. It felt okay. She was a friend in need. He had friends that were girls for years. It was only recently that this sort of thing was getting a bit confusing. But this was clear. She needed a friend, and it wasn't weird to hold her at all. They kept moving along that night on the wagon, as Jules wanted to get to Anport and speak to any of the fishermen still there. She said the Coast Guard told them they'd all sustained damage in the storm and couldn't pull out yet. She also told them that they wouldn't authorize the use of a flight search until the winds had completely eased and boats had done a preliminary search. When they eventually stopped for the night, they were exhausted and spent their first night in the wagon. They were too tired to worry about it and Rowan gave Jules the press bed and he slept on the floor. The narrow benches weren't comfortable for him. When he woke in the morning, Jules wasn't inside. He looked out. She had Black Elder all tacked up and ready to hitch. Can you put him on? She asked. I'll go in and cook breakfast. She had her hands full of something like tiny dark berries. Last year's dried on the bush, bilberries, she explained. I found them over that headland. There were a few of these wrinkled things on each bush. Took me ages to get this many. Nice for pancakes, Rowan said. No, sorry. Not for us. Why not? I need to make some medicine. Jules didn't elaborate until later, when she reappeared at Rowan's side as the wagon rolled along with steaming bowls of porridge. Exciting breakfast, Rowan said, but quickly added, thank you, when he saw her look. 
porridge had been okay for lots of his journey, but he'd been spoiled on fresh eggs and preserved fruit over the last few days by Mizzy. When they were finished, Jules explained about the bilberries. They support the vascular system, and if my dad is hypothermic, he could be a lot worse than you were, so I want to be ready. She picked up a notebook and started to read out loud. You must gradually warm a hypothermia victim. Get them into dry clothing, replace lost fluids and warm them. If possible, a warm water bath should only be done in a hospital environment because there is an increased risk of cardiac arrest and rewarming shock. Get heat to the inner core. It's possible to do that through saline warmed into the stomach. If you rewarm too rapidly, you can cause the person to have circulatory problems resulting in heart failure. She kept going. Minimize the person's physical exertion when removing him or her from cold water. Rescuers may have to enter the water to get them. Once out of the water, gently remove wet clothing. Protect them from wind. There are other recommendations, you know, things about hot water bottles and the maximum temperature and how much, if you do put them in a bath, that you put them in and keep arms and legs out and just their trunk. There's a whole lot about being gentle, about the internal organs being really sensitive to physical shocks so that they have to stay really calm and not... A cold heart, it says, is particularly susceptible to ventricular for, for I can't even read this. Anyway, the thing that they said is a person could look unconscious and might even appear dead. They might not appear to be breathing. Their pulse goes so slow and weak that there no pulse could be found. Their skin could even look blue and grey and they could have a rigid body. So, it says here to always assume that a person or your patient's revivable, not to give up and handle them just really, really carefully. But if they've been there a long time, you need extra help. You need to get to a doctor or hospital. Stop, Rowan interrupted. What? Okay, let's say your vision is real. Does it tell you where he is? Not exactly but I'm following my feelings and it might get clearer. Right. Well, you said your dad wore a survival suit. Yes, my mum insisted that he get the very best one possible. Brilliant. Don't you see? It might have an EPIRB on it. A what? A radio signal. Jules looked at him. Well, won't the Coast Guard be able to see that? I don't know, Rowan answered but I think I can. How? I've got enough kit here. I think I can build something. He jumped off the wagon, which was going slowly up a headland and disappeared under it, emerging a few minutes later with a bag of bits from the secret box. He hopped back up and then went inside. Rowan, I see the turnoff for Anne Port. It's a big barrel. They make them down there, you know for pickled herrings. He felt the wagon turning and the bumpiness increase. Okay, I'll come out in a bit, he called to Jules. After a while, he emerged, holding something 
in one hand. Oh, sandwiches, he said. I'm nearly done. I just had to stop because of the track. They tossed about, bumping into each other's shoulders on the seat. Yes, I see what you mean, Jules said. After what seemed like an age, they saw the little village of a few houses and a long shed and a tiny harbour. It was filled to bursting with the four trawlers. Jules started to fidget. She'd been patient on the road and on the track, but now she just wanted to go. She needed to ask questions. Go on, Rowan said. He didn't have to suggest it twice. I'll park her up near that headland, he called after a disappearing Jules. Rowan sorted out Black Elder on a nice bit of grazing and worked on the radio receiver for the rest of the afternoon. He took it up to the headland for a trial. When he got there, he was amazed at the view. The coast was jagged, with broken up bits further north he could see that the sea was like a cauldron, with five sea stacks all sent around the high island offshore, which held his attention, commanding it, in fact. He was still pondering on the island when Jules arrived. It's called Toralandon. They know nothing. She looked deflated. Rowan just listened. I asked everyone. They're all too busy trying to fix their boats. They said the storm was very rough, big waves that could capsize a boat if it hit you the wrong way. Not very nice. But they did say they want to try to get fixed so they can look. She flopped down beside him. They sat together until it was getting cold and said little more that evening, each left to their own thoughts. Rowan woke from a vivid dream. It was as clear as a movie, but in slow motion. A huge freak wave hit a boat and a man was swept overboard. The boat turned, the sea pummeled it. It turned again, and behind it was the shape of an island. Rowan! Rowan! He wasn't dreaming now. Jules burst into the wagon. They've heard from Johnny O'Malley. When she saw his black, blank look, she continued, My dad's boat. It's just put into port north of here. But their radio signal's broken. They sent a message to the Coast Guard. One of the boats here will pick it up. They've no details, but they're trying to get more information. Can you come with me? I brought some smoked mackerels for breakfast. Rowan got up and put on some clothes while Jules kept her eyes firmly on the pan where she heated up the fish and bread to soften them both. They ate quickly, checked Black Elder and headed to the village. So this is your friend, the fisherman called Donal said when Jules introduced him. Come on down to the boat. We're trying the Coast Guard again for more news. They clambered down the ladder on the stone pier and jumped into the boat. Donal had a hand out to grab them if they slipped. We're just about ready to head out again later this morning. Repairs are complete. Donal chatted as he brought them into the cabin. Rowan looked at his ship-to-shore radio set with interest. This kind of technology was easy to build and repair, and there were a lot of ham radio around the country now. He couldn't understand why Jules's family didn't have a set especially when her dad 
was at sea. It took a while to raise the Coast Guard, and when they did, it was very hard hard to understand the voice coming through the set, with all the crackles and fizz. Eventually, they understood the Coast Guard wasn't saying anything until he found out who exactly was there with Donal. Rowan felt uneasy as he heard the voice say, So it's his daughter and a friend alone with you, is it? Her mother's not there, over? Aye, that's right, answered Donal. Over. And she says there's no way of to contact the mother today unless she goes back to the village. Over. Aye, aye, that's right, that's what she was telling me. You were speaking to the mother the other day, right? Over. Yeah, we told her we'd no news for her then. Over. And you do now. Over. Yes, but there was silence on the line. Jules was nearly jumping up and down around Donal and looked like she would grab the mouthpiece out of his hand at any second. Aye, all right. I think you know what's coming. Look, best spit it out. She's hearing every word and I'll make sure she's all right. Over. Very well, Donal. Put her directly on over. Hello, this is Jules. Please tell me. Hello, Jules. This is Peter O'Donnell, Coast Guard. I spoke with your father's crew today at 0900 hours and they reported that during the storm they were hit by a freak wave. Rowan and Jules sat on the beach. Both of them were overwhelmed by thoughts and emotions, but neither of them knew how to get them out of their heads, hearts or mouths. The villages in Anport had been very good to them. But they'd escaped the fuss eventually. They'd sat and watched the four trawlers head back to sea, heavy with the sense of another tragedy, to join the list of names this shore had taken over many centuries of seafarers. Jules spoke first. Mum will hear soon. She'll know I'm here, and I should be with her. Not worrying her more, but I... She didn't know you came with me? It was a statement. Rowan realised he'd known all along. She'd not told her mum. And he knew that now she was feeling guilty for not being there when her mother heard the news. He still couldn't believe it. I don't believe he's gone, Rowan. I think he's out there alive. I really do. She sounded so helpless. Rowan heard himself say... He's on Tora Leiden. She stared at him. That's what I think. My vision, it's clear in my mind now. It's an island, and I thought I was just grasping at hope, something, anything. Why did you say that? Rowan paused. If he said what he believed, he knew it changed everything. No tech report, no verifiable results, just him. They might go off on a wild goose chase. They might do something stupid or dangerous. But everything on his journey seemed to lead to this moment. And now that he was admitting it to himself, all the hints of visions and signs came flooding back to him, things he'd ignored in Dublin, right up to the vision while he fought for his life and met Jules in the other world, the imaginary one, that had now become more real to him. Because I dreamt it this morning. Come on. He dragged Jules up. But we've no radio, 
Now, for the Coast Guard, we've no boat, we're... Come on, was all Rowan would say. They ran back to the wagon. Get your stuff, all you'll need, you know. She nodded, and Wild Rowan gathered up his radio and many other things he could think of. Jules packed her bag. Come on, Rowan said again. He led her back. There was a smaller beach near the bottom of the headland. Then she saw them, three curra, like boats, smaller, almost like a kayak, she realised. On closer inspection, she saw them made of wood, but had paddles. They looked at each other, and then the sea. It was pretty calm. They stowed their bags under the small deck at the front of the boat and jumped in. They took the paddles, and Jules climbed in while Rowan gave her a last shove and went in after her. They knew they were being foolish. They found a couple of life jackets in the bottom of the boat. If they capsized, they wouldn't last long in the cold water without a survival suit. They hadn't told anyone what they were doing. They knew they wouldn't let them go. They were completely on their own. It was heavy going, so they saved their breath for paddling, except when Jules said, Torrelaidan isn't that far out, but we'll have to go around it to the far side, to the lower shores. If Dad is alive, he's not between the sea stacks. Rowan agreed. His vision wasn't of one of those craggy stacks or the high cliff. They pushed on. It was grueling work. They both had blisters which the salt water burned constantly. They had their warmest gear on, but the sea breeze went through them, so they were both sweating from the exertion and cold all at the same time. Their feet were wet in the bottom of the curra, and it had a few inches of water sloshing around in it. Every now and then they had to stop and rest because they were getting so tired. At first the island didn't seem to be getting any closer, but soon they could hear the sounds of hundreds of seabirds, gannets and puffins and herring gulls on the cliffs. It was an eerie sound and drove them on. The cries seemed to touch their souls as if trying to scare them off and discourage them. Finally, they came parallel to the island. They stayed out, afraid of being dashed on the rocks if they came too close. Getting around it took almost as long as getting to it. And just when they were reaching the point of exhaustion, they passed the rocky shore to the site of a stony beach. They headed for it immediately, and when they pulled it up they sat in the boat, catching their breath and nursing their painful parts for a while, before they pulled, got out and pulled it up further. Only then did they have a drink and a cold pancake. Jules started along the shore, and Rowan knew he had to keep up with her. She wouldn't rest now until they combed the island. They did most of it at a run, up and down rocky inlets, shale and stony beaches, Stopping to catch their breath, they kept trying but found nothing. Not a sign, Jules wailed. Now they were stopped. Rowan pulled out his radio receiver. He'd been thinking. High cliffs could have blocked anything on this side of the island from the shore. But maybe from here. He fiddled with the wires and the potato he'd attached for a battery. Jules looked at the thing with extreme scepticism. Rowan laughed out loud. He was sure it was the same look he'd had when Jules first described her vision of her dad in the water. 
When he stopped laughing, a small beep filled the silence. They both froze and looked at the tiny giz screen Rowan had hooked up and waited. Another beep and a red dot on the screen. Is it? I don't know. Come on. Rowan got up carefully, not wanting to knock any of the connections. He moved slowly to the left, listening and watching, and then to the right further up the shore. The signal is stronger this way. It wasn't far. Jules saw it first. A red flash as the swell rose up in a crack between the rocks. She broke into a run with Rowan holding the device gingerly running behind her. But then he dropped it because he could see there was a man in a red and yellow suit. He was wedged at the waist between the rocks and a large piece of driftwood that looked like he dragged himself partly on top of it. The swell was bashing him around, but he wasn't moving. Dad! Dad! Jules was screaming and scrambling over the rock. Rowan was trying to catch up with her. He was afraid she'd tumbled in. He caught her just as she got close. They had to pause to figure out how were they going to get him out and over the rocks. Rowan realised that if they could put the bit of board they could just see, like a structure. He didn't stop to think about the next question. He just got to work. He'd brought the rope in his backpack and between the two of them, leaning and slipping and grabbing, they finally got hold of the hood and then the jacket. Rowan leaned in. Jules screamed in anguish as she touched her dad, but calmed enough to get the rope under his shoulders. They pulled back and tied and then they both backed up and braced themselves against the rock and heaved. It took them so long, heaving, trying, tying, retying, trying to get over on the rocks, using the wood to slide. Eventually, they met a narrow stretch of sandy beach and the wood slid more easily. They pulled it as far as the grass bank that gave them some shelter beside a rock pool. Jules looked wretched. Rowan felt it. She could finally really examine her father. She listened at his mouth, but shrugged when Rowan raised his eyebrows in question. I I don't know. Her voice was cracking. Remember what your book said, Rowan said, encouraging gently. Don't give up. Life signs might not be there. Come on. That seemed to do it. Jules rallied, and after that, there was no more rest. She wanted a fire. There was only the big driftwood and a few pieces of stick on the island, because it had no trees or bushes. She persuaded Rowan that they would have to burn part of the boat and use the rest later, later to signal the shore. He went in his own and paddled it as close to their position as possible. Then he dragged it across the rocks and tipped it off a large one so that it began to smash in several places and that allowed him to break off more timbers. It took him a while to get the pitch-covered skin. He'd keep that for making a smoky signal fire. Jules told him to get large rocks and put them in the fire. Large rocks, he queried. I thought you used small ones for me. Yes, but this is different. Remember? I need a minute bath we can slowly heat. She kept working, lifting out her little pot herbs and the dried bilberries. 
They got the fire going. She sent him off to seaweed. If he wakes and can eat, we can give him a broth. I've dried stuff, but the seaweed has lots of nutrients. But for now, I'm just going to warm seawater. Rowan soon saw what she'd planned. They'd put the hot rocks into the rock pool, and it started to warm up. When it was lukewarm, she got him to help strip off the survivor suit. Inside, they could feel just how cold he was, cold as death, his mind told him, but his heart said, don't give up. They eased him very gently into the pool, which was smooth bottom, conscious of what the book had said about damaging organs. Next, Jules pulled out a tube with Rowan's reluctant help this time. She got it down into her father's stomach and poured the warm seawater in to warm him from the inside. Next, she dropped a few drops of her bilberry liquid in brandy under his tongue, and they started adding a few more rocks at a time, being really careful to bring the temperature up in the pool. Then they rubbed his hands and feet and arms and legs that they'd kept outside of the water. Rowan didn't stop to think about this naked man who might be a dead body or he'd have completely freaked out. He just trusted Jules and did what he was told. He thought about the call back to life he'd experienced. Closed his eyes. He started to call. What's your dad's name, Jules? I never asked you. It's Michal. Rowan kept his eyes closed and started to call Michal telling him his wife and his daughter needed him, that it wouldn't be fair to Jules after all her work if he died now. He kept at it as he stoked the fire and rubbed the man's feet. Jules was getting nervous. She said, what if he comes to but has a heart attack? The book said that this should only be done in a hospital probably, so they can use paddles and shock him if he does have one. I don't know if I could do CPR. Just then. There was a movement. Jules had positioned herself to keep Michal's face out of the water. She was in the pool too. Michal juddered. Jules screamed and stopped. He was clearly breathing now and not having a heart attack. Not yet, anyway. They laughed and they cried, hiding it as they worked. They laid out his inner clothes and the survival suit by the fire and tried to get them as dry as possible their own wet clothes there too. There was plenty of boat to burn. Rowan found that very funny at one point. They dried off the damp blankets from their packs, and when Michal's breathing seemed more even and his body evenly warm, they carefully, slowly got him out and dry and into and under as many clothes as they could, wrapping him tightly in the blankets. It was getting pretty dark when they'd finished, and after placing warm rocks on the various places on Michal, like Jules had done for Rowan, they put lots of wood on the fire, and with the sandy banks to shelter them, they snuggled down under the blanket either side of Michal, listening to him breathing and sharing body warmth under the blanket. Before he drifted off to sleep, Rowan felt a glimpse of the feeling of the humming song, the place it had brought him to at Jules's celebration, that they were all one and the same thing, part of the sand, the island, the sea, each other, not separate, but truly connected. He smiled, connected, 
like on his beloved webnet. Epilogue Rowan's parents had repeated and repeated that life is the journey, not the destination. He thought of this as he lumbered with the wagon through the village. He really knew what they meant now. He'd set out, focused on getting good swaps and sales for his goods and, really, just keep his parents happy by doing what they wanted. But those things had faded once he was out on his own, really in his own journey. Each day had thrown in new situations and people. He'd responded from his instincts. He knew more about himself now because of his actions in the last few weeks. The people he'd met along the way had changed him too. He knew he wouldn't forget them or what he'd learned from them. He thought life is a journey would do him fairly well as a philosophy especially if he could remember that once he wasn't actually on the move again, back in the city. Back in the city, he thought. He started to look forward to seeing his friends and his parents, trying to avoid thinking about missing the one new friend he'd just left. But then, he heard her calling. Was he imagining it? He turned around, and there she was, running out of the village. He felt a soaring in his heart at the sight of her, like a bird in flight. He pulled on Black Elder. Whoa! Did I forget something? He asked, as she caught up with him. Yes, me, she grinned. I'm coming with you. Me ma'am says it's okay. Rowan found he just grinned back and moved over as she hopped up. Gee up, Black Elder. We're on the home run now. Too many thoughts rushed round his head to speak, and he felt it was the same for her. And he realised he knew something else. Life is a journey. Whatever happens is the only thing that can happen. He'd try to make the best of whatever that was, and accept everything as much as he could as life lesson or teacher. But then... He realised that the icing on the cake was who you got to share the journey with. So that was a longer reading because that is the end of the After the Collapses novel that I wrote all those years ago. And I hope that my listeners have enjoyed it and have got something of the ideas and thinking behind it in terms of the integration between this world we live in that people suggest could be a technotopia that would help protect us from societal and environmental collapses, between that and the nature connection and the practical realities of relocalizing our production and so that is why in this last few chapters I tried to give a few more hints of how there were still traditional industries and trade goods and people being known for something like the pickling in the little port of Anport and Jules and Rowan then experiencing and experimenting with different forms of knowledge with the 
technological knowledge and awareness and the value of accessible technology, things that people can make and understand, and at the same time trusting their instincts and their visions. And also the way in which synergies happen in life, the coincidences that are always almost unbelievable, and yet life has a way of being even more strange than a fictional idea that Jules would have had two occasions in a short space of time to work on recovering someone from cold shock and going into stasis in the sea, and that that was perhaps a a contrived idea. But I know that in life and stories that I've heard and experienced in my own life, those strange coincidences, those strange preparations seem to always be mappable backwards as we connect the dots along the way and say, if this had not happened and that had not happened, then this couldn't have happened. And so I wanted to play a bit with those coincidences. I don't really know where this piece of creative writing goes next. I am very open to ideas. I'd love it if people wanted to make contact and I think I see visual images that could be created. I'd love to play with the idea of a kind of graphic novel and maybe think about narrative changes as well that I've been exploring throughout the reading of it. And so it may just remain as this one short eight episodes written and read in a podcast, or maybe it will go on its own journey and who knows who that will be with.